Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for revealing yourself to us in your word. Father, if it was not for your word, we would not know you. And yet, through your word, you have shown us who you are and you show us who we are. Father, you have shown us the world uh, around us uh, and how we can understand it. Father, it is in your word that we have hope and that we have life and light. So, Father, I pray that as, once again, as we uh, hear the word preached, I pray that you would help lead and guide my own words and that uh, you, by your spirit, would uh, help each of us to receive the word that you have for us. Father, we don't simply want to live better lives, but we want to uh, live lives that reflect our faith in you, our trust in you, that our allegiance and our joy is found in you alone. So help us this day uh, to that end. Help us as we look at your word. So once again, that we would be fed spiritually and nourished by your word. Therefore, grow up in faith. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in the first chapter of Romans, uh, Romans uh, 1, 16, uh, Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For it is the righteousness of God, I'm sorry, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So the righteous shall live by faith. What does it mean to live by faith? Often we think about uh, how we come to uh, salvation by faith. It's uh, by grace, through faith, that we believe uh, everything that the Lord has said and then uh, are saved. But what does it mean to live by faith? Kevin DeYoung wrote that faith is uh, a Christian believing that everything God says in his word is true. And when we believe everything in God's word, we respond to different passages of scripture in different ways. As Christians, we're called to live our lives by faith. And I think that's what we find in uh, chapter 14, our passage for this morning that uh, Emily just read for us. We find faith and a life lived in faith. As the chapter opens, uh, we begin with uh, the distribution of the promised land, the land west of the Jordan River. And as we walk through the text, I, I want to draw out three principles that I, I think we will find of genuine faith that are in the text. So as Christians, uh, we're called to live our lives by faith and our faithful God. And we do this first by being anchored to God's word. First by being anchored to God's word. As I said, as the chapter opens, we find an assembly of, of sorts. Uh, we find Eleazar the priest and Joshua and the heads of the tribes of Israel. They're working together to distribute the land, the, the promised land. And we read in, in verse 1, just as Emily did, right, that these are the inheritance of the people of Israel that they received in the land of Canaan, which Eleazar the priest and Joshua the son of Nun and the heads of the father's houses of the tribes of the people of Israel gave for them to inherit. Their, their inheritance was uh, given by lot, just as the Lord had commanded by the hand of Moses for the nine and a half tribes. 
For Moses had given an inheritance to the two and one half tribes beyond the Jordan, but to the Levites he gave no inheritance among them. For the people of Joseph were two tribes, Manasseh and Ephraim, and no portion was given to the Levites in the land, but only the cities to dwell in with their pasture lands for their livestock and their sustenance. The people of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses. They allotted the land. Now, this is like a pretty generic, pretty kind of ho-hum explanation, right? You've got, uh, you know, why is it that there were only nine and a half tribes that are included in the next chapters, right? And so we see, right, that Moses had already uh, allotted an inheritance to two and a half tribes beyond the Jordan. The people of Joseph were now two tribes, right? Because Jacob had, had taken uh, Joseph's sons, uh, Manasseh and Ephraim in order to give Joseph a double portion. The Levites were not given a portion. And so if you do your math, your Bible math, you come up with 12. And then we say that the people of Israel, uh, in verse 5, did as the Lord commanded Moses. They allotted the land. And you think, okay, great, this is fine, this is interesting. And these details of these first verses seem mundane. But within the wider context we realize that it, it took 45 years to get to this point. We read, and actually I would encourage you, to flip back over to uh, Numbers chapter 13. And I want us to look at what is behind this chapter. So uh, chapter 13 of Numbers, um, going to go through a fair bit of it. So once again, I encourage you to open it up there. In verse 2, we see that the Lord said to Moses, he spoke to Moses saying, Send men out to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers you shall send a man, every one a chief among them. So Moses sent uh, them from the wilderness of Paran according to the command of the Lord. All of of them, men who were the heads of of the people of Israel. So what, what do we see? We see Moses uh, doing as the Lord had commanded him, sending out spies into the land. And, and then the names of the heads are, are listed there. And verse six, we see that from the tribe of Judah, Caleb, uh, the son of Jephunneh. And in verse eight, we see uh, from the tribe of Ephraim, Joshua, Uh, the son of Nun. He's actually listed as something else here, but we find out then within the chapter that Moses called him Joshua. And then verse 17, we read that Moses sent them out to spy out the land of Canaan and said to them, go into the Negev, up into the hill country, and see what the land is and whether the people who dwell in it are are strong or weak, whether they are few or many. And whether the land that they dwell in is good or bad. And whether the cities that they dwell in are camps or strongholds. In other words, get a lay of the land. Just so we can understand what we're getting into. And verse 20, and whether the land is rich or poor. Whether there are trees in it or not. But be of good courage and bring some of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the season of the first ripe grapes. So he's sending them in, probably in in the midst of summer, to look at the land. And what they find out is that the land is much better than maybe they had even imagined. The account in Numbers goes on to tell us that they spied out the land for 40 days. 
I read that, uh, you know, think about geographically, if you look on a map, it's likely that uh, the spies covered some 220 miles from the Negev, the arid region, and the south of Beersheba, right up to the north, about 47 miles north of Damascus. So, so they covered a lot of ground in those 40 days. The text tells us that the, they came to the valley of Eskol and cut down from there a branch with a singular cluster of grapes, and they carried it on a pole between them. They also brought some pomegranates and figs. And that's, that's up to the point where then Emily read for us. And we read that the spies, as they returned, they did not bring a very good report back. And in chapter 13, verse 27, we read that, and, and they told them that, that we came to the land in which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified, and they're very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. And uh, they were giants, right, according to them. And in verse 30, 30 uh, Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. But the rest of the people, they wouldn't hear it. Right? They, they had heard the bad report from the spies, and they would hear no more. In fact, it actually gets worse. Right? The people wept all night, according to Numbers chapter 14, and they grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And we read in verse 2 right, that the whole congregation said to them, Would that we have died in the land of Egypt, or would that we have died in this wilderness. Right? It, it, we'd be better off dead. We'd be better off in slavery than to go into this land. They question God. They say, why is the Lord bringing us into this land? To fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones, they're going to become prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to the one another, let's choose another leader and go back to Egypt. So Moses, Aaron, Joshua, and Caleb pleaded with the people. Verse 7, it says that the land which we pass through to spy out, it, it is an exceedingly good land. And if the Lord delights in it, he will bring us into this land to give it to us. A land that flows with milk and honey. And then hear this, right? Verse 9, he says, Only do not rebel against the Lord. And do not fear the people of the land, for, for they're bred for us. Their protection is removed from them. And the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. And all the congregation responded, not with less, but all the congregation responded and said, let's stone them. Let's stone them with stones. And then verse 10, it says, but the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. Just imagine for a moment. They're ready to condemn God's leaders, to throw stones at them, to kill them so that they can go back into slavery in Egypt. And the glory of the Lord appears. And, and every time I read that, I hear an audible gasp, right? A gasp for myself as I imagine this, but I also imagine the people. They're ready to sin. They're ready to, to take the life of, of the leader that God had given them. 
And the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me? How long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I've done among them? Remember, he brought them out of Egypt with a strong and mighty hand. But now they, they feel like they can't, they can't even enter into the land. And so the Lord's judgment was that the people of God would not enter the promised land until everyone who was 20 years old and older died in the wilderness. Think about that. Right? If, you are, if you're 20 or older and you were there, you're not going into the land. Not after that response. Imagine, right, those who were 19 and under, how that must have felt. Numbers 14.30, uh, the Lord said, Not one shall come into the land that, where I swore that I would make you dwell, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. The children that they were afraid would be devoured by the people of the land, they would be the ones who would inherit the land. They would grow up in the wilderness 40 more years, suffering for the faithlessness of their parents. Think about that for a moment, right? Think about that. What if your own children had to suffer because of your sin for 40 years in the wilderness? It puts a weight, I think, on, on disobedience to God. It puts a new weight on our shoulders of what it means to go against the Lord. But now we find in Joshua, back into our chapter, Joshua chapter, uh, chapter uh, where are we here? <laughs> we are uh, in Joshua chapter 14. I did prepare for today, I promise, okay? Sorry. Uh, Joshua chapter 14, and, and, and we find then now, once again, the heads of the tribes. They're meeting with uh, Eleazar the priest and Joshua to distribute the land that God had promised. What do we, we read that they, they divided the inheritance by lot as the Lord commanded by the hand of Moses. They, they were going to listen to what Moses had commanded and they were going to abide by it. And because the Lord had commanded the lot to be uh, the means by which the land was divided, it was considered sacred. And it was also considered that, that once the lot was cast, it was the will of the Lord and it wasn't something to be questioned. Right? Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. And so this isn't just like throwing dice. This isn't just like randomly trying to figure out, well, let's see what you're going to get and roll the dice like in a board game. No, this is God's way of distributing the land fairly so that they would know that this wasn't by human intervention, but by the Lord. There was no campaigning. There was no wheeling and dealing. And the people of God, it seems, right here, they submitted to it. And once again, in verse 5, it says, The people of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses. They allotted the land. And so unlike their, their unbelieving parents, we see here that they listened and obeyed God's instructions, his words, and they submitted to God by submitting to his word. And we think about 
Think about that. We think about that today. You you had these two spies who came in with, well, one story and ten that came up with another story. Actually, it was really the same story. The people are huge, but the land is great. But these two said, but but we can go do it. And the ten said, I don't think so. And they calculated the cost and, and, well, the majority won out and won the hearts of the people. In fact, it said that their hearts melted. And when we think about that today, I think perhaps more than ever, we too are bombarded by so many different voices, so many, so many different uh, news, uh, or, uh, we're bombarded by news of threats and dangers all around us. Right? Come in, they're coming to us constantly. Some of those are imagined, but, but I would say many of them are real, real threats. And there's always the temptation to follow after solutions right? that, that make sense. That, that look like they make sense of the reality around us, to see the dangers and, and to turn and run. There's always a temptation to follow after solutions that deviate or even oppose the truths of God's word. I think about even, even the temptation that could have been there in the dividing of the land, right? Imagine uh, if, if people had just taken things into their own hands, right? Kind of power-broking a power brokering or intimidation that might have occurred at the division of the land. Right? Favoritism? Well, yeah, we got to give this guy. He's, he's got to get the best because he's, he's a buddy of mine. Or, or maybe even fear of man or, or a desire to win approval or once again, bullying, right? The loudest voice determining what, who gets what. But all of these could have easily led this tribe of getting a little bit more and that tribe of getting a little bit less. I think when we think about our own lives, I think it's their commitment then in this chapter to submitting to the word of the Lord is a reminder to us of our need to submit our lives, our faith to the word of God, right? True faith is always anchored to God's word. Because it's through the scriptures that God speaks to us. Right? No matter what our minds tell us, no matter what the reports tell us, it is, it is always the word of God that has God's truth. And it's only when we're anchored to the scriptures that we're able to know and follow after the wisdom of God. The scriptures are a guide to our lives. They're a lamp to our feet. They are protection from our own foolishness. Once again, I think Kevin DeYoung's quote is helpful. Faith is a Christian believing that everything God says in his word is true. And when we believe everything in God's word, we respond accordingly. So it's a submission to God's word. It's a, uh, it's a submission. Actually, this last week, we, uh, the elders, uh, Brent and Troy and I, were at a conference, and they were one of the things that came up about submission uh, and submitting to God's word, and they say, you know, there's a thing with submission. Like, if we agree with something, we're not really submitting to it. I mean, we might be obeying to it, but what does it mean to submit? Well, often submission means, I don't agree with it, but I'm willing to obey anyways. And I think when Joshua and the leaders came together, 
they wanted to submit, no matter what their other thoughts were, to God's design in dividing the land, they were willing to submit to God's word, his instruction for them. And that, I think, is part of genuine faith for us as Christians. Really jumping then into that, and I think what we'll see, we'll hopefully give a little bit more flesh to it, is the second point. As Christians, we're called to live our lives by faith in our faithful God, and we do this by being anchored to his word, and secondarily, by trusting in the power of God. So think about Right? Think about the, uh, the, these leaders coming together. And the instruction is, okay, here's how we're going to divide the land, by casting lots. In submitting to that, they, they had to trust that God was actually working through that, through the casting of lots, that, that it was indeed God who was, and not random chance, that were making the decisions. And I think it's, an essential part of our own Christian faith, our, our walk of faith, is to trusting that our faithful God is present enough, powerful enough, and loving enough to indeed be working in our lives. Right? What do we see in Romans 8? That God works all things for good for those who love him and trust him. But is it really God or is it just random chance? We always feel this temptation to, to uh, think that it's random chance, but yet our sovereign God said he's sovereign over all things, even the casting of, a lot, of lots. But then the text moves and looks at Caleb. Right? Caleb was a Kenizzite. We don't know a whole lot about Caleb other than uh, being a Kenizzite meant that he probably was a descendant of Esau. Which seems strange because it's not the... Not the promise, and yet here he's going to be the first one to receive his inheritance in the promised land. But at some point, whether it was in Egypt or afterward, sometime he was grafted into the family of God and into the nation. And, and he was honored enough to be considered the head of the tribe of Judah. We know that he was a man of great faith who wholly followed the Lord. In fact, that phrase is used three times in the passage, that he wholly followed the Lord. And it's an echo of words that God used to describe Caleb. So Caleb is just, he's not like boasting, like, hey, I've wholly followed the Lord. I don't know about you guys, but I did. He was echoing what God said about him. And in fact, that, that phrase is used only about two, for about two people. It is only used to describe two people, and that is um, Caleb and Joshua. But as the head of the tribe of Judah, Caleb approaches Joshua. Think about that history that they shared together. Two old men with long history come together, and he approaches Joshua and says, You know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God at Kadesh Barnea, concerning you and me? I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land, and, and I brought him word again as it was in my heart. Caleb was not fabricating his story uh, or, or his report uh, about the land, but it was what he felt in his heart. And I think there's a, we should note the sincerity of, of Caleb. 
And then in verse eight, he said, but my brothers who went up with me made the heart of the people melt. Yet I wholly followed the Lord my God. Think about the, the two things, the two uses of the word heart there. You've got uh, Caleb giving a report, a good report of trusting in the Lord, faith in the Lord and the Lord's power to deliver them versus the bad report melted the heart of the people. Often it is bad news that melts our hearts, that causes us to lose courage and to fear that whatever is around us, whatever is before us is greater than the God who is sovereign and on the throne. In other words, the, the, the trouble in front of us can often cause us to lose courage and lose sight of the God who we can't see. Because the visible, when it's before us, it's hard to ignore. Caleb, though, goes on and he says, But Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land on which your foot has trodden shall be an inheritance for you and for your children forever, because you have wholly Followed the Lord my God. So what do we see behind Caleb's words? We see evidence of a heart of faith that is fully trusting in the Lord. As I said, Caleb saw the same thing that the other, that the other spies saw. He saw the fortified cities. He saw the huge military force of the enemy. He saw the threat. But Caleb also did not lose sight the power of God to overthrow their enemies. He said, I brought him word as it was in my heart. In other words, Caleb could see not only the enemies of God, but he could see in his mind eye what God had done to bring them out of Egypt through the Red Sea, destroying all of Pharaoh's armies, which were much greater, no doubt, than the armies that were in the land and Caleb's wholehearted faith allowed him to keep the threats of this world in perspective, even in the face of the opposition of his fellow spies. So think about that, right? It's, it's one thing to, to trust in the Lord, but to continue to trust in the Lord, to have courage to continue to hold to our trust in the Lord in, in the midst of opposition from others. It, it can be lonely, and it can be difficult, Right? They talk about mob mentality. And we see evidence of it throughout, actually, the Old Testament in the wilderness. Right? That's, that's how we got a, a golden calf. But, but in here, we think about the incredible strength of, the, of this group mentality. And, and I think we see it even uh, today. Right? When, when people around us start to panic, we tend to panic. The temptation is, is always to believe that those who are around us, well, even if we can't see the danger, maybe they can see the danger. Maybe they can see what I can't see because maybe I'm just not tall enough. Worry and doubt can quickly replace faith in our faithful God's ability to work. It takes courage to stand alone. I, remember, right, they, they were going to kill Caleb. And Joshua. They were going to stone he and Moses and Aaron, and it was only God appearing, the appearance of the Lord that stopped them from killing uh, these, these four. I don't know how 
we don't know, once again, a lot about Caleb, but I can't imagine he was necessarily loved for his report. But what do we do with this story? What do we do with, with Caleb and his example here, right? I, I think our reaction to Caleb's story, we often want to elevate him and say, man, look at this guy. Look at this man of faith. He was awesome. Right? We, we need to be just like him. And so we, we place him in a position that's above ourselves, which we fear is really unattainable for us. We, we, we see his faith and we think, well, I can't really be like him. But as one author wrote, the reason we do that is precisely because we lack faith. How wonderful it would be to have faith like Caleb's becomes our stock response. But, but then we go either uh, settle back into our comfortable mediocrity, mediocrity, right? And we think, well, he was a great Bible hero. That's not me. That's not me today. Or we go on some quest to try and find a greater faith as though it's some abstract entity that we can, we can acquire, perhaps through some overwhelming emotional experience. And so we chase that in the hopes of having greater faith. But the same author says that but faith is like a muscle. The more it's exercised and stretched, the stronger it will become. But yet, yet in the end, it is really the object of faith rather than merely its exercise that determines our spiritual condition. Think of a gymnast swinging on the bars, right? He may have an iron grip, but if the equipment is defective or wrongly assembled, the result will be disaster. What we need is not greater faith, subjective confidence, but faith in a great God. Because the essence of faith is holding on to a God who is faithful. That's what faith is. Holding on to a God who is faithful. Sometimes our grip is very weak. Which is perhaps why Jesus described faith as like that of a mustard seed. Small, right? But it grows. And Sometimes it doesn't look like it's very much or it's worth very much. But if our faith is in the God who is faithful, we know that not only do do we cling to him, but more importantly, he clings to us. The example that we have in Caleb is not an example that we emulate, but it's the object of the faith that, that should draw our attention We too need to trust in the power of God to be at work. And that can be a number of different ways. For for Caleb, it was trusting God to overcome the enemies that were before him. But in our own lives, it might be God's power to overcome sin in our own lives. It might be the power of God to work in the lives of our children or our parents or our friends or to overcome the lies of the enemy. But as we live lives of faith, we we need to be anchored to God's word, because that's where we find the truth and wisdom of God. We also need to trust in the power of God, that he is the one who is doing the work. So the essence of faith, indeed, is holding on to a God who is faithful. 
And so as Christians, we are called to live our lives of faith, our faithful God, by being anchored to his word, by trusting in the power of God. And the third is by hoping in the promises of God. And now we reach the second part of, of Caleb's words. He says, and now behold, the Lord has kept me alive. Just as he said these 45 years since the time that the Lord spoke this word to Moses. While Israel walked in the wilderness. And, and now behold, I am this day 85 years old. And I, I don't think it was his birthday. But I, I think he was just saying that he was 85 years old at that point. But then listen to this. What does he say? He says, I am as strong today as I was in the day that Moses sent me. My strength now is as my strength was then for war and for going and coming. Wow, man, think about that. Wouldn't you like, I, I, I don't know how old you are, right? But if he's 85 and he has the strength of when he was 40, that's pretty amazing, right? That's, that's some good strength. But remember, right, what was he basing his strength on back in going in? wasn't because he looked at his own strength as an awesome warrior, but he was trusting in the Lord. I think part of what, what Caleb is pointing to and part of what we need to see in ourselves is, once again, it, it wasn't Caleb's strength that said, all right, I'm pretty tough still, so send me out. But he was strong in his faith. And so then what does he say then in verse 12? It says, so now give me this hill country of which the Lord spoke on that day. For you heard on that day how the Anakim were there with their great fortified cities. He says, it may be that the Lord will be with me. I shall drive them out just as the Lord said. There seems to be almost a glee in Caleb's message, his voice as he says, you know how those, there was those great fortified cities? It's almost as if he is excited to see what the Lord will do in his midst. And even that phrase, it may be that the Lord will be with me, uh, all the commentators seem to agree that this wasn't doubt on Caleb's part. It was humility. He didn't doubt God's promise that, that, uh, his, uh, that he would inherit the land, uh, but that he wasn't sure if he would be the one who would be the one who would acquire it. He wasn't sure if it would be by his hand, but he knew that he could still trust the Lord. And verse 13, then Joshua blessed him and gave Hebron to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, for an inheritance. Therefore, Hebron became the inheritance of Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the, the Kenizzite, to this day, because he wholly followed the Lord, the God of Israel. Now, the name of Hebron formula uh, formerly was Kiriath Arba. Arba was the greatest man among the Anakim. And the land had rest from war. If the math works out, we realize that uh, they had been in the promised land for about five years. Right? Because he was 40 when God had sent him out to be a spy. Now he was 85. And they had the, uh, 40 years in the wilderness. Caleb had been waiting a very, very, very long time for his inheritance. But what do we see? We see... Uh, a man of faith who still believes that God will deliver on his word. He held on to hope 
that the faithful God would deliver what he'd promised. And so Caleb hoped with patience. It's not easy to do. I don't think it was easy to do back then. I don't think it's easy to do now. Right? We've said before, right? We don't like to wait. But imagine waiting for 40 years for God to fulfill his promise. What happened during those 40 years? Well, one of the things that happened was Caleb endured the punishment for 40 years for the sins of others. And yet we hear no complaint or regret from Caleb, at least none that's reported to us in the word. We also see that uh, the promise that was to come, Caleb remained steadfast. He believed it. He, he went to Joshua and said, hey, by the way, don't forget the words, right? Can, can I go now? Imagine, right, that, that you believe something so much that when you finally see it, there's no hesitation anymore. I think that's what we see in Caleb. You see, old age did not weaken Caleb's faith or his eager and expectation that God would deliver what he had promised. And I think that is both an encouragement and a challenge to us. It's, it's an encouragement in that just because a long time has passed doesn't mean that God isn't still at work. It doesn't mean that God won't still fulfill his promises. And it's a challenge to us, right? Older saints, don't give up. God is steadfast. Older saints, don't grow cynical. Right? It's easy to become cynical over time, feeling as though we're no longer as excited about the faith that we once had that was so new to us. It becomes kind of part of our everyday, and we kind of forget that the God who promised is the same God who, who brought Israel out of Egypt. Just like you did when you first believed, we, we need to remain, we need to cling steadfastly to hope. Steadfastly to a God who is faithful. And so you may feel uh, weak physically, you may feel tired, but don't allow that weakness to weaken your faith. I know I've told you guys uh, about my grandma and how I had shared the gospel and prayed for her over and over and over over the years. Uh, I don't know how many times I'd shared the gospel with her, but it was when she was in her 90s, and I, I don't remember which birthday. I need to figure out which birthday it was. I sat down and I said, can we talk about this again? Right? And, and we talked about the gospel, and something was different that day. And I remember explaining to her, she said, she, well, I, I don't understand why Jesus had to die. That, that part's weird to me. So as I explained the gospel to her, at the end she said, I never saw it that way. I never understood it that way. I said, do you believe, Grandma? And she said, yes. Now my grandma had grown up going to church and she knew a lot of the right answers, but she was always afraid to leave, always afraid to say goodbye, 
right? She was afraid of dying and, and not seeing this one more time. And she was also afraid of death, I found out after a while. She didn't want to die. She wasn't sure what she would face. But after that day, she was never afraid of death again. Uh, now, dementia had set in somewhat. Her memory was not great. And so she didn't remember that day. But, but even months, years later, she would say she wasn't, she wasn't afraid of death. She wasn't necessarily ready for death. She, she didn't want to die quite yet, but, but she wasn't afraid of it because she said, I know things are taken care of. So Friday night, after 102 years, she went home to be with the Lord. And so that same promise, right, that she clung to in her 90s, that same promise, right, that, that I was willing to, or I so desired, because I love my grandma, I desired her, for her to be able to embrace. It drove me to share the gospel with her over and over and over, to pray for her over and over and over. And then finally to see her both accept the gospel and now to go home and be with the Lord. It's amazing. As Christians, when we cling to Christ, anchored to his word, trusting in his power, and hoping in his promises transforms our whole world. There's one more thing I want to draw out in what we see in Caleb. And that's the story of redemption. Right? Because Caleb, there was an inheritance that he waited for. And so he endured the suffering for the sake of others. So the same with our Savior. That for the joy set before Christ, he endured the cross and the shame so that he could bring forgiveness to sinners. And so for you and me, right, we don't deserve an inheritance. Right? Our sin has disqualified from an inheritance. So what did Christ do? Christ took the blame so that we could have an inheritance with, with, with God's people. That we could be grafted in just as Caleb was grafted in. We don't know Caleb's backstory, but we know Christ's story. And so as the people of God, we have entrance because of what Christ has done for us. And so therefore, as God's people, he calls us to live our lives in light of what Christ has done. Not out of some obligation, and so when we're anchored to God's word, it's because God who loved us gave his life for us. When, when we trust in the power of God, it, it, it's not because we can't find anything better, but because we know that that power transformed us, can do anything. And we place our hope in the promises of God, not because of what we have done, but because what Christ has done on our behalf. So 
saints, let us live our lives in faith, by faith in our faithful God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what you have given to us is not what we deserve. And the promise of hope and of salvation, the promise of eternal life with Christ, is given to us because of your faithfulness. Because you did what we couldn't. And so, Father, I pray that you would help change our entire perspective of the world around us, of ourselves, and of the hope that we have for the future. Help help it to be transformed so that Christ is greater than anything we have to face, than any enemy that presents itself, even, uh, even the evil one. And remind us, Father, that, that even death itself cannot be overcome because of what Christ has done. That Christ has overcome even death, the last enemy. So give us faith. Where we are faithless, I pray that you would help us. Where we lack belief in areas of our lives, I pray that you would bolster that belief. Remind us of who you are and what Christ has done and help us to cling to you. In Jesus' name, amen.